If you have your Bibles with you tonight, I invite you to open up to 2 Kings chapter 21. Quickly becoming probably one of my favorite chapters, which is weird. Because it's not a terribly happy chapter as we take a look at it together. Just so we kind of have an understanding of where we've come as we've worked our way through, we, we saw... You know, the Lord do incredible things through the nation. In fact, in, in, in Paul, in, in Acts chapter 13, he gives such a great description of where we've been going on Wednesday nights. He talks about the fact that, that God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt with a strong hand. And he was patient with them. He put up with them through the wilderness wanderings while they were disobedient to him. And at the end of the 40 years of wandering in the desert... He brought them into the promised land. He gave them victory over seven of the 31 nations that held the, the promised land and then called them to continue the, the battle until they had taken control of, of all the land. He promised he'd be with them wherever they went, but they, they entered into a time of ease. They stopped fighting battles. They stopped trying to move forward. They entered into a time of ease, prosperity, and prosperity led to the, the complacency, and complacency led them to make peace with their neighbors, and making peace with their neighbors meant that they began to worship like they worshiped. They stopped influencing those around them with the truth and started being influenced by those around them with a lie. So for 450 years, God sent judges to them. And every time the children of Israel find themselves in bondage, right? Everything's going really bad. God would raise up a judge. The, the Hebrew word for judge is probably better translated in the English today as hero. He would raise up a hero. You guys remember him, right? Samson. We talked about Jephthah. We talked about Gideon. Remember the several of the judges, the last judge being Samuel, who was also the prophet who brings about the first king. When they, when Samuel came on the scene, the people didn't want judges anymore. They wanted kings like all the other nations, remember? So God gave them Saul. And Saul from the tribe of Benjamin ruled that he was not a man to be ruled by God. He kind of wanted to do his own thing. And he didn't obey God all the time. And as a result, the Lord said that I'm going to take away the kingdom from you. And when Saul died, rather than it going in succession to his sons... Uh, who happened also to die with him in battle, it went to David. David, of the, of the uh, tribe of Judah, becomes the kingly line. What is it that the Lord said of David? you remember? Uh, David, here's a man after my own heart. And then in, in Acts, when Paul talks about him, he says, here's one who will do all my will. He wants to... Walk with the Lord. Wow, that's a pretty incredible thing. Well, David rules, and, and you know we know he has his highs and lows, right? And, and uh, through Bathsheba, who's one of the lows, he has a son named Solomon. You remember God changed Solomon's name. You remember what he changed it to? It helps me to remind myself of this, because otherwise I just look at Solomon and the failure at the end of his life, and I forget about how he started and how much God cared about him. See, God said, when they named him Solomon, God said through the prophet, I'm going to call him Jedediah. Jedediah means beloved of God. 
God loved Solomon. Solomon started well, right? Didn't end so well. Made a lot of uh, decisions. What do we see? Similar to the time of the judges, what do you see in Solomon's life? He entered into a time of prosperity, right? And prosperity led to what? Complacency. And complacency led to what? Making all kind of deals with the people around him. So many deals he made that he, every time he made a deal, he got a new wife. So he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. We'll round off. That's pretty close. That's about, I don't know, 999 too many. But he kept doing it. And the Bible tells us very simply at the end of Solomon's life, his wives turned his heart away from the Lord. And Solomon ends and he he has a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam wasn't, wasn't a good guy. Rehoboam, you know, he grew up in a palace that had so much gold they didn't count it. Remember? That the, that the gold and silver were as, as plentiful as stones in Israel. If you've ever been to Israel, they don't build with wood. They build with stones. Why? What do you build with? You build with the stuff you got around. So stones are everywhere. Gold and silver were like the stones in Israel at that time. Well, Rehoboam, he, he causes a division in the kingdom. Jeroboam is the king that goes north. He splits the people. He goes north, takes the ten tribes north, two tribes south, Judah and Benjamin. We already saw as we went through the book of Kings that the northern kingdom never had a good king, never wanted to follow the Lord, kind of did their own thing, and they get conquered by Assyria and assimilated into Assyria, planted back at Mount uh, uh, Gerbim, where you have Samaria. Later on, you remember Jesus and the Samaritan people, and the fact that the Jews didn't want to have anything to do with them? Those are the leftovers of those people in the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom had some good kings and some godly guys. And we just finished up looking at one. His name is Hezekiah. Hezekiah, uh, his name means son of Ahaz, and he, um, he started a, a, a revival in the land, and things were going good. And you remember, and I shared with you last time, Hezekiah, toward the end of his life, after God gave him that incredible victory over Assyria. Remember Assyria, 185,000 bad guys waiting outside to crush the city. They don't care what he has to say. He gave them money. They wouldn't go away. He's going to destroy the whole city. And Hezekiah went before the Lord and opened it all up before the Lord and said, God, here's what he says he's going to do. And God sent how many angels? One angel versus 185,000. And it turned out about how you'd expect. One angel won. And you had 185,000 dead. And you had Shennacherib run back home. But right after that, Hezekiah gets sick. And the prophet that was running around in those days was a guy named Isaiah. You guys heard of Isaiah, right? Isaiah the prophet was running around in those days. And so Isaiah the prophet, he said, hey, uh, or Hezekiah sent to Isaiah, said, Isaiah, come here. I want to find out if I'm going to get better. And Isaiah walks into his room and he says to Hezekiah, you're going to die. Get your family in order. Get your things in order. You're not going to get better. And, uh, This is where I kind of veer off from a lot of other Bible teachers. I don't think Hezekiah had done anything wrong. I think it's wrong when you and I accept something that has happened in our life 
as the will of God without ever taking it to the throne of God. We just accept it. God never said, Hezekiah, it's my will that you die. God just said, you're not going to get better. And if you look, if you read the story in 2 Kings chapter 20, all Hezekiah did is he turned, he was laying in bed and he turned his face toward the wall. And he turned his face toward the wall and he said, Lord, I have, I have always followed you and tried to do whatever you wanted me to do. And then he wept. That's it. Isaiah leaves the room and as he, he gets outside, he don't even get very far away. God says, wait, 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 Isaiah. I want you to say to Hezekiah, I hear your prayer. I see your tears and I will come down and heal you. And he came down and healed Hezekiah. It's kind of important. Do you know why? Jesus, our Savior, was born through the line of Hezekiah. But so far, Hezekiah didn't have no kids. In the final 15 years of his life, Hezekiah has children. And one of those children is Manasseh. And you know, if you look in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you know, you'll read his name in there. Manasseh. Jesus comes through him. So I think it's kind of an important deal. We also see that for that last 15 years, Hezekiah focused making copies on the Word of God. He, he was writing out the Word of God, making copies of the Word of God, which in two generations is going to be very helpful because his great-great-grandson, Josiah, is going to use that copy to bring about revival in the land again. Hezekiah prayed. Listen, just because something happens doesn't mean... You have to just outright accept it. This must be the will of God. No, I think sometimes this is a lazy believer who's unwilling to wrestle in prayer over an issue. I've been that guy. I don't want to be that guy anymore. When you read the scripture in Genesis and it says that, that Jacob did all this crazy stuff. Remember he divided his family when he heard Esau was coming. And he put the family of the kids, the, 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 the wife he liked, Rachel, in a good place. And Leah in a not so good place. So if the armies came, they'd get to Leah and her kids first before they got to Rachel's. I don't know if you caught that. And then the Bible says, Jacob wrestled with a man. The Bible goes on to tell us that that man was no man. That man was God. Jacob wrestled with God. Do you know that nowhere will you find the Bible rebuking Jacob for wrestling with God? Nowhere does it say Jacob should have not done that. Nowhere does it say, well, I don't know what in the world Jacob was thinking. And it's a crazy story. The Bible says Jacob wrestled with a man and then he prevailed. How in the world does a man prevail against God, wrestling with God? How much would God have to do? One angel who's nowhere close to as powerful as God wiped out 185,000 of the most powerful army on the face of the earth at that time. But Jacob, chubby old man, even older than me, prevails? Why? Read the story. Jacob grabbed the hold of God and said, I'm not letting go until you bless me. 
uh, crazy guy. That preacher's going to start talking about prosperity doctrine now and relax. Tell me what the blessing God gave him was. He touched him on the hip and made him lame. Oh, I don't think I want to wrestle with God if that's the kind of blessings that he's given. I don't want that kind of blessing. I want you to think about what an incredible blessing that was. Every morning when he got up, he climbed up out of bed and he had the limp. What did he think about? Every day. Every day of his life. He remember. I remember that day. Man, God blessed Jacob abundantly. He changed his name that day. He said, you have been known as a manipulator. From now on, you're going to be known as Israel. Prince of God. Governed by God. Same, it's the same concept. God's prince. Man, that's pretty cool. Because he did what? He wrestled. But let's move forward. David, sin with Bathsheba. We remember? Nathan the prophet tells David, because of your sin, the child that is born is going to die. We all remember? Tell me. The day that child was born until that child died, what did David do? For what? That God would... He said, who knows whether or not God will change his mind... And make this child well. And until he knew, he was not going to stop praying. In fact, he prayed so hard for that baby, he didn't eat. He didn't drink. He didn't sleep. He wept on the floor lying in that baby's nursery until God took that baby home. And then what did he do? He got up, right? He washed himself off. The servants were tripping What's he doing? So they asked him, what are you doing? So while the child was alive, I'm not guaranteed that it's God's will to take him until God takes him. So all the while between the judgment, the word came and the finality of that word, he said, I prayed. Well, that's wrestling prayer. You don't have to accept Everything. Jesus. How many times does Jesus tell us to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking? How many times does he say it? How many times does he have to say it before we go, I think that's what I need to do? Uh, It took me a long time. I read it for a long time. and, And I would stumble over that because what I believed was God is sovereign. And I absolutely believe that God is sovereign and ultimately in control. Absolutely believe it. So I would say, I'll just pray one time. If God's going to do it, he does it. If he's not, he won't. There's only one problem. Jesus told me to be like that woman banging on the door of the judge and keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. And then he very specifically said, when I, the son of man, come to the earth, will I find this kind of faith that keeps asking, that keeps knocking, that keeps seeking when I come? Or is he going to find guys like me who just say, 
God's going to do what he's going to do. And I'm not really a part of that process. That's not what I read in the pages of Scripture. So we see the end of Hezekiah. What's all this got to do with anything? Well, take a look at chapter 21 of Second Kings, and, and hopefully we'll begin to see. See, now my intro was only like 25 minutes. The good news is the rest will definitely be less than an hour and a half. I promise. So look what it says. 21 verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah. Hephzibah means my delight. And Manasseh, you remember, Manasseh is one of the sons of Joseph, right? You remember? Joseph had two sons. What were their names? Ephraim and Manasseh. What did Manasseh mean? He's caused me to forget. And when Joseph named him, he caused me to forget. He was talking about the wrong that his brothers had done to him, right? Now I think it's a little more prophetic. Manasseh reigns in Judah longer than any king in Israel or Judah. He has the longest reign of them all. So, well, take a look at the kind of guy he was. Verse 2, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. According to the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out from the children of Israel, he rebuilt the high places Hezekiah his father destroyed. Everything Hezekiah did, Manasseh undid. Everything Hezekiah tore down, Manasseh rebuilt. Look all it says. He rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image. Uh, some of yours may say an Asherah. Uh, it's the same thing. Uh, both of them were a wooden pole, in essence, a carved wooden pole. Uh, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. Now let me tell you what we know from verse 3. Well, we know from verse 3 several things. One, Manasseh's name is more prophetic because he's utterly forgotten about God. And as we look at the events that are happening, we'll, we can begin to discover that there's some kind of other influence. And we'll see it when we get to the end of his life. There's a foreign influence in his life. There's a foreign influence in his life. We're, we're going to see that Manasseh marries a woman from outside of Israel. And that's probably, could be part of the issue. But there's something else. Manasseh's 12 years old. Last time we saw a, a young king, <clears throat> Jehoiakim, he had Jehoiada, the priest, come alongside and, and help him. You remember? And the, the priest kind of guided him. But there's nobody here from Manasseh to guide him. Hezekiah died. He had children late in his life. His, his son is... 12 years old, when he becomes the ruling guy. Now, what happens when you become king? How many people tell you no when you become king? How many 12-year-olds can handle nobody telling them no? Not very many. There's a few. But not very many. And Manasseh certainly wasn't one. He did whatever he wanted to do, didn't he? He put everything back up that his dad had done. He, he, he not only did he worship in the high places, which is the sin of Jeroboam, which mixed uh, Jehovah or Yahweh, the worship of Almighty God, with all the other religions that were around. That's the high places. 
Not only did he do that, he put altars to Baal and Ashtoreth, Ashtart. All these were things that Ahab had done. You guys remember Ahab from the northern kingdom? He was married to a famous gal. You remember the famous gal's name? Jezebel, right? Jezebel. So, so he did all those, but not only did he do all that, it says also that he began to worship all the host of heaven. Listen to what happened under Manasseh's reign. Hezekiah, God had given him an incredible victory over um, Assyria, right? And Shennacherib went running. But under Manasseh, Manasseh becomes a vassal of Assyria. That means Assyria, there's no battle, there's no war. He just becomes a vassal. He says, you guys are too big for us. I'm too little for you. I'll just become, you know, we'll become part of your country. And they became part of the Assyrian kingdom, in essence, during that time. And what, who did Assyria worship? They worshiped all the hosts of heaven. So he brings in the worship, the, uh, the astral worship, the worship of the sun, the moon, the planets, the stars, and they bring that in. So they start worshiping that as well. Look at verse 4. He also built alt- altars in the house of the Lord. So he put altars inside the temple. He brought altars inside the temple area, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I'll put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of God. So inside the two courts of the house of God, he put altars to all the hosts of heaven. And he made his son pass through the fire. Doesn't that sound nice? You guys remember what that is, right? That means he worshipped the god Molech. During the reign of Manasseh, we read about it because later on when we read about Josiah, Josiah is going to turn it into a dump. During the reign of Manasseh, they go to a place called the Valley of Hinnom. And in the Valley of Hinnom, they begin to put little altars in the Valley of Hinnom to the god Molech. So when you want to worship the god Molech, what you would do is you would take your infant child and you would lay him in Molech's arms, light a fire, and burn him at the altar. In the Valley of Hinnom, they did that so often that it became known as Gehenna. You ever heard that word before? Jesus used that word to describe what place? hell the valley of Hinnom he caused his own son his own child he offered in a human sacrifice to the god Molech that's what he's talking about not only that he practiced soothsaying he used witchcraft he consulted spiritists and mediums he did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger now pause for a minute This is the worst king, north or south. And he has the longest reign. Why? Why would God leave him in? So many other guys, there's a couple of guys that didn't even make it a couple months. But this guy, he's going to rule 50, he, he rules longer than David. The longest reign of any king But he did so much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke the Lord to anger. Listen to verse 7. He even set a carved image of Asherah 
that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave to their fathers, only if they are careful to do according to all I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they, see that word they, that's not just Manasseh. Everybody's joining along with them. You get it? And they paid no attention. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations that the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. What is he saying in these first nine verses? He's saying Manasseh was worse than anybody who had ever lived there. Anybody who God took out. Remember, that's God's land. He's the, he's the landlord. He put in the land who he wants to, right? He took out the Canaanites and he put in Israel. But now Israel's worse. So what's God going to do? He's going to take Israel out. He, he takes them out of the land. The worst king ever, 55 years. Why did God give him so much time? So it says in verse 10, the Lord spoke by his servants, the prophets. Now, one of the servants, his prophets, who the Lord spoke by was a fellow named Isaiah. Remember I told you Isaiah was around with Hezekiah? Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations... He has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him and and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I am bringing such a calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. Now, if God says he's going to do something that's so bad, your ears will tingle. I don't think it's a good kind of tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the plumb line of Samaria. Remember Samaria, that's the northern kingdom, right? God judged the northern kingdom. And and now the southern kingdom's worse. So God says, I'm going to put the same plumb line, the same the rule of judgment that fell on the northern kingdom, I'll bring to the south. Same judgment. Listen, all throughout scripture the Bible tells us nobody gets away with nothing. Nobody ever gets away with nothing. God is perfect and just. Whether you see it or don't see it, nobody gets away with anything. Same rule of judgment falls over the southern kingdom as fell over the north. He says, I will stretch over Jerusalem the plumb line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. Wiping it and turning it upside down. By the time that's accomplished under Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, Jerusalem will lie empty. Ground to the ground. There's, I think, I want to say four. Don't quote me on it. But I think there's four times Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem. Each time he comes, he sets up a king. Each time he sets up a king, that king won't listen. And so he comes back and conquers it again. So four times, he'll, the fourth time, he plows it to the dirt. The Lord said, just like a dish, I'm going to wipe it off 
and turn it over. And he said in verse 14, So I will will forsake the remnant of my inheritance. That's Nachalath. It's his heritage. It's God's portion. What was God's portion? The nation of Israel. What did God get out of the deal? The nation of Israel got God. What did God get? He got the nation of Israel. He said, I'm going to forsake my portion. I'm going to forsake them. I'm going to, I'm going to put them through the judgment and deliver them into the hands of their enemies. And they will become victims of plunder to all their enemies. Why? Because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day of their fathers came out of Egypt to this day. So there's been sin all along, right? Israel was never perfect. There was sin all along, but this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Manasseh, under his reign, is when the absolute judgment of God is is going to fall upon Israel. Now look at verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. What innocent blood did he fill Jerusalem with? According to Josephus, he killed a prophet every day. One of those prophets, according to tradition, was Isaiah. Isaiah hid in the trunk of a tree. And they found him. Wouldn't let him out of the tree. And they cut the tree with him in it. In Hebrews chapter 11, you can read in the hall of faith that some were sawn asunder. It's talking about Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet. Every day, Manasseh killed a prophet. In fact, he killed so many prophets that during the 55 years of Manasseh's reign, you won't find a prophet that speaks during that time. God's kind of quiet. 55 years, God left him. Now look what it says in verse 17. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, all that he did, the sin he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So that's it. The longest king, and that's it. That's the end of the story. He killed everybody. He's horrible. He's nasty. He's mean. He's rotten. He's good for nothing. And then it just stops. You know better than that. So we're going to turn to the right in our Bibles to Second Chronicles 33. We turn to our right. It's the, it's the next two books, so you don't got to go very far. You turn the right right. Turn to my right. Second Chronicles 33. We won't read all the stuff in Second Chronicles 33 that tells us how bad he was. What I want you to do is go to verse 10 of chapter 33. Pretty much chapter 33 reads the same. Oh, that was wild. Reads the same as what we just read. But in verse 10, let's read. Well, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. We just read about that, right? They sent prophets, and he was killing them all. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, 
who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. And while he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God, humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, brought him back to Jerusalem and into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. For a long time, critics of the Bible would read this and say, it's just obvious that this did not happen. This didn't even make sense. Assyria was a world power. Why would they take him back to Babylon? But you know those guys, the, what's that movie, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? What's the fellow's name in that movie? You guys, none of you seen that movie. Thank you. I know somebody knows. Indiana Jones, he's one of those uh, archaeologists, right? And they like to play in the dirt all the time, dig things up. Yeah. Well, they dig up around Nineveh, where Nineveh was and where Babylon was. They've done a lot of excavations out there. Listen to what they found. In a list of 22 subject kings of the land of Hatti, during the reign of Esar Hadan, that was the son of Shenecherib. Remember Shenecherib? The 185,000 got killed. His son, Esar Hadan, whom that monarch summoned in the list of 22 kings, of the kings who paid homage to Esar Hadan, is found the name written in stone in Assyria. Manasseh, the king of Judah. Oh, that doesn't mean that he got taken to Babylon. Okay. Well, they keep digging when they find stuff like that. After Esarchadon, his son, Asur Benipal, came to reign. He was known as the viceroy of Babylon. Within a little while, he became known as the king of Babylon. He became the ruler of Assyria, and for a short time, he ruled from Babylon. While he was ruling from Babylon, we find written in the stone, in the Assyrian record of Manasseh being deported with these words, Hooks and fetters. Manasseh, somewhere in his reign, made Assyria mad. Somewhere in those 55 years, he got taken into Babylon in chain. The Bible doesn't tell us who, who was taking care of the home front while that was going on. It just said that he was in chains. Hooks. When the Bible says the Assyrians took him with hooks... Maybe you don't understand what that means. When the Assyrians conquered a nation, they would take them all by hooks. They would take a hook, much like what we uh, do when we when we buck hay. You guys seen those, right? What do you call them? They got a name. Egg hook? Hay hook. My hearing is going too. So they took a hook, much like that, and they would thrust it through the nose 
down into, you know, if you take your nose out of your skull, there's a big hole back there, right? So they thrust that hook all the way into their head. And that hook would hook them, and then a chain from that hook would connect them to the next person in line. And they would walk from wherever they were to wherever they were being taken. So that happened to King Manasseh. When he got to Babylon, what did Second Chronicles tell us he did? He got humbled, right? He's sitting there in prison, and he's in that place, and he begins to call out on the name of the Lord. He begins to pray, right? Do you think he just offered one prayer? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. I imagine if i am got a hook in my head and bronze fetters on my arms, I'm praying for a while. I'm going to pray for all I'm worth. It says, now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God. That word implored intimates that he begged, pleaded, knocked, sought for forgiveness from God. He humbled himself. What's the Bible say? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and what? And he will lift you. What if you're the most evil guy who ever ruled? Will he help you? Will will he forgive you? So it says he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Pretty humbling, isn't it? To be the king who at one time nobody ever told him no. To being a guy with a hook in his head. In a prison. Where... The guy chained next to you don't really care if you're the king or whatever. You're in the same place he's in. He's humbled greatly. Verse 13 goes on and tells us again, and prayed to him. And he received an answer to his prayer. God took Manasseh and made him king again. He took him back. But that's not the end of the story. Look what it says in verse 14 of Second Chronicles 33. And after this, he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of the Gihon in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate. And it enclosed Ophel, and he raised it up to a great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. So he kind of does a military buildup, right? Because I don't think he wants the hook in the head again. So, so he does a military buildup. What's it say in 15? And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. So he tried, right? Verse 17 says it wasn't for nothing. Because nevertheless it says the people still sacrificed on the high places. They still were up on the high places. It says they sacrificed to the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord God of Israel had said there's only one place you can sacrifice. That's in the temple. 
There's not a hundred ways to God, right? How many ways is there to the Lord? It's one way. There was one door into the temple. There was one altar. There was one place for sacrifice. Because there is only one sacrifice. Everybody can't just find their own way to God. Your own way to God don't get there. So the Lord says, they still went to the high places. And they said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship God my way. Now, is there latitude in worshiping the Lord? Sure there is. But there's only one sacrifice, only one name under heaven by which you must be saved. What is it? Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. How many? None. Except through me. How do we come to the Father through Jesus Christ? We believe on him. The Bible tells in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin became sin for me. That I might become what? The righteousness of God. That's how I come to the Father. Bathed, if you will, in the blood of Christ. I can only be bathed in the blood of Christ one way. By grace through faith. I can't earn it. I can't buy it. I can't do anything for it. I take the kernel of faith that I have that God's given me by his grace and I place it into Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you can do whatever you want on all the other high places, but it ain't God. Only one way. Only one altar. Only one sacrifice, only one way. Why did God wait 55 years for Manasseh? Because he knew Manasseh would repent. So God waited for him. God waited as long as it took for Manasseh to put his faith in the God of his fathers. And when he did it, he wasn't king much longer. Our God is so patient and kind and loving that he will wait as long as it takes. But what about them other kings that only went two months? Doesn't God know? Does God know if you're going to repent before you've ever uttered the words, I repent? If you're not going to repent, how long should I wait? But if you're going to repent, I'm patient. I love the story of Manasseh and the prayer of Hezekiah because to me it's a story that says there's no such thing as a lost cause. The worst guy, worst king in the history of Israel comes to faith. Does his best at the end of his life to try to turn things around. But, you know, if you spent 50 years going on the wrong road, you're probably not turning it all around in five years. Would you agree? And I don't, we don't know. I don't have dates. So I don't know at what point all this takes place. Uh, I probably could research it and find out. But, but. I guarantee it wasn't very long. And he has a son. 
one who he didn't cause to pass through the fire. We see him back in in 2 Kings. Let's look back there real quick. He's got a son. It says in verse 18, So Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Uzzah. Then his son Amon reigned in his place. By the way, Manasseh wasn't buried in the city of David. The last person buried in the city of David was Hezekiah. There's only going to be a couple more kings. They're not going to be born they're not going to be buried with the other kings. It says Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. And he reigned 2 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulameth. Meshulameth means restitution. But you notice what it says? She was the daughter of Haraz of Jatba. Haraz of Jatba was outside of Judah in the Canaanite land. So Manasseh's wife, at least one of them, was a foreign woman who God said, don't marry foreign women because they worship other gods and it'll turn your heart away. Jesus said kind of the same thing to us. And he said, don't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. Why would he say that? Because unbelievers are so bad? No, because when you do that, it's almost never the story where they all become believers and life is happily ever after. Usually it goes the other way. So his mom named Restitution... Or I'm sorry, not restitution, retribution. My eyes are going bad too. <clears throat> Which is uh, the proper punishment. She's from a Canaanite land and it says, He did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. So remember, he had the majority of his life watched his dad do the, the most horrible things ever. He just followed in his footsteps. Unfortunately, Manasseh had lived 12 years watching a very godly king, Hezekiah, but it didn't take with him. It doesn't always take. But he walked in all the ways that his father walked, and he served the idols that his father had served, and he worshipped them, and he forsook the Lord God of his fathers and did not walk in the way of the Lord. And the servants of Ammon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. Hmm. The people of the land executed the ones who had killed the king. Then the people of the land made his son, Josiah, king in his place. Well, the rest of the acts of Ammon, all that he did, are they not written also in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah. And Josiah, his son, reigned in his place. Look at chapter 22. Josiah was what? Remember I told you God waited forever for Manasseh, right? 55 years. God gave Ammon two. And Ammon was not ever going to change his way. So the servants in the palace killed him. Could not have been too great a guy, right? It's not a whole lot of stories of servants killing the king. Servants killed the king and the people, of course, put the servants to death for, for what they had done. 
And they took his son, Josiah. And you start to think, and I'm, what is the deal? And you look at all this stuff and you see Hezekiah, maybe well, if Hezekiah hadn't lived, then you wouldn't have had Manasseh in 55 years. All that evil wouldn't have gave birth to, to the son that he had that, that followed in his footsteps and, and did all these evil things. You wouldn't have an eight-year-old king right now. But Josiah is like his great-great-grandpa. I like Josiah too. Josiah is a good king. One of the last, Josiah. Hezekiah prayed. God answered his prayer. Hezekiah's son forgot about God. God waited 55 years for him and did things in his life that would bring him to repentance. So Hezekiah is probably going to see his son, I think, in heaven. We'll see when we get there. Manasseh, I think, is saved. Manasseh's son, he's not going to make it. But his great-great-grandson, Josiah, pretty cool story. Pretty cool story. All we see as we go through this chapter and as we look at the history of the nation of Israel and all the stuff that they went through and all the things that are happening, what we see over and over and over again is simply the truth that God's main goal is to get you home safe. And as long as there's an opportunity to get you home safe, you got more time. When there's not that opportunity anymore, it's not. But what do we do in the meantime? You know, Manasseh had something going for him that his son didn't. Manasseh had a mom that loved the Lord and had grown up watching her husband Hezekiah do all these great things. I like to think she prayed for him. Don't you pray for your lost ones? If you got any lost ones out there floundering in the world? And if you're here tonight and you're one of the lost ones, isn't it good to know that somebody, some grandma, great-grandma, aunt, niece, neighbor, somebody is praying for you? It's always too soon to give up. There's no such thing as a lost cause. And what I see in the pages of Scripture here is that God wants His people to pray. Manasseh prayed. God gave him back the kingdom. Hezekiah prayed. God restored him to life. Don't always work out that way, but at least you always know I did my part. I prayed. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, what's God say he'll do? He says, I'll hear. I'll hear, I'll see every tear, and I will come down, and I will heal you. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for this time, and we can spend together, Lord, studying your word and 
the story, this crazy story of Manasseh and, and the children of Israel and the long journey that they have, Lord God, that come to faith. God, I just thank you so much that, that you continue to work. And what we see is that your word declares that uh, you do not change. You, not, you did not suddenly change the way you do things. You do not change. You are the same today, yesterday, and forever. The same grace you had then, you have now. The same mercy you had then, you have now. The same love you had then, you have now. The same requirements you had then, you have now. Lord God, I just pray that we, your people, who are called by your name, we would be a people who humble themselves and pray who make the choice to wrestle with God and hold on until he leaves a blessing who make the decision though it looks like nothing is ever going to change they pray and fast and wait to see if God's hand will move man there's such an incredible truth to be found when we see God's word that way. Lord, I pray that we would choose to be be that kind of people. That we would come to know your amazing grace, God, the things that you give, how you move. Just so excited to know, man, what you will do for your people who will pray. God, I pray that we take that lesson and apply it to our life. That we receive your truth. We make it our own. We get on our knees and we wrestle for our lost. We wrestle for our wayward. We wrestle for our sick. We wrestle for our hurting. We wrestle as long as there is breath within us, we call out to your amazing grace. And we know you will hear from heaven, that you will see our tear, that you will come down, and you will heal your people. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.